November 23rd, 2008. It's the Watt from Pedro Show.
November 23rd, 2008, here with Brother Matt. Hello. Brother Matt, uh, got a paddleboard he initiated yesterday. Yeah, maiden voyage. Now, in the old days... Well, explain it, Brother Matt. Yeah, his new style is kind of return to old style, because it's like old Hawaiian style, just making a return, but... Since, like, Clark Foam's not happening, they had, like, the monopoly on surfboards forever. Now they're coming up with different substances. And uh, epoxy is kind of one of the substances that, that's been popular. And it's, like, way more floaty. It's kind of like an ice chest material. So it doesn't ding as easily, and it's strong. And uh, so they make these huge, big old boards. Like, mine's 12 foot 2, 31 inches wide. So it's I can't even get my arm around it. Yeah, um, but it's not that heavy. Like my old longboard right here is probably heavier. Um, when you stand up on this, it's got like a rubber mat. Yeah, yeah, it's got a soft top on it, and the paddle is like nine inches taller than you. And uh, so you get up, and it's a little bit tippy, but it was cool. I got up yeah, first what was try. Your first adventure, like first try. I got up and uh, I paddled about maybe ten paddles, and then I fell. And then I got up again, did like the same thing. Then I got up the third time and uh, made it all the way over into the marina. And then uh, came back to the beach, went down to the pier, came back to the beach again, went down to the jetty, came back to the buoy. And all inside around. the harbor. Yeah, yeah. yeah Cause so I've seen cool. dudes paddling out in the sea. Yeah, I think it would be cool like have someone drop me off at Royal Palms and then just paddle home. Wow. Now... Uh, I should say what songs we play. We started off the show with Anatomy by John Coltrane and then Flood Part 4 by Boris, and then we played the whole album, all four parts. Trippy piece. Um, I did a television interview for something called Vice TV last Monday. Oh, cool. And uh, the cats there, uh, Ian Savonius was the Spielmeister, and he said he was coming from New York City. <laughs> and some bone chiller. <laughs> you know, another reality. No yeah, it was a great deal. escape for him to come here to work. Yeah, like big a vacation. Time. Wasn't digging on the traffic though. It's understandable. <laughs> like I played a gig Friday with Dose, last gig for two thousand eight, and I'm, well, yeah, he called me in the traffic. All right, two hours. Yeah, and it was a crawl in Sherman Oaks. Wow. No, Woodland Hills, nearby, West Valley. In fact, this pad used to be Moby Disc. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was a few of them. This was the Valley one. And now it's called Red Balls Pizza. And uh, got this stage up about, it's like you're standing on tabletops, and there's tables there, and people chowing pizza. And uh, Kay's brother, uh, Paul Rossler, sang some... Songs played piano solo, and then we got up there and played for an hour, which was pretty long for Dose. Case had to beat her up some. Some parts say got us a little loud because I want people talking over. So there's a lot of square Johns there too, just pizza chowing. family chow. Yeah. You know, Friday night and little family. But actually, there was a lot of people for Dose. In fact, more than that could come into the pad. Now, I remember we had Skip Hiller on a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. and he plays here regularly. Well, the hatch is opening again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Hello. hey, Tal. How are you? 
Welcome. So, uh, we got our guest here for today. Hey, Tal. How was the traffic? We're just talking about driving to the valley. I was driving from the valley. There's a mic right over there. Man, that kind of a... Oh, that's why she did that on the phone, so she wouldn't have to speak. Mm. Yeah. So, man, the traffic. Now, coming home wasn't so bad. In fact, coming home, it was actually my first big distant trip since uh, Thursday. Uh, I went and put, I was feeling vibration in the wheel of the boat. And you know what's this? Weight fall off the wheels, out of balance, steering dampener, bearing shocks, you know, all kinds of things. And nope, turns out. <laughs> hey there. Yeah, my tires. Big, uh, two of them had tread coming off the tire. Oh, wow. Separate. I mean, there's a lot of tread, very deep tread. These pieces of shits. How blowout at freeway speed roll that boat. So, man. Uchisaki Hachimangu. Oh, man. I felt very blessed, man. So I went and got... Now, I always use Michelin, but this boat came with these stock tires. Oh, I thought when, when they get down, said, huh? I'll get, you know, the Michelins like I usually do. And, uh, well, got 47,000 miles. What a fucking nightmare. Man. So now I got XLTs, Michelin XLTs. And so driving back, I couldn't really tell driving there because it didn't get over 20. Uh, <laughs> yeah, cool but coming ride. back, and it's just like the old ride. Oh, cool. No shaking my fucking molars out of my head. And uh, last night, Pete and Jared, second man in Highland Park. And, Mr. T. Yeah, Mr. T's boat, Arlo. <laughs> uh, Carnage Asada played with Mr. Steve Reed. He's on drums now. Dave Travis on cello. Whole collective. Tony from uh, Bell Rays is playing guitar. And then PCH, a band called PCH played, and it had Chip Kinman from the Dills. Uh-huh. And he's got his wife singing with him and his 16 year old son on bass. <laughs> Did you see Good them band. recently? Not PCH, but I saw Tony, his brother oh, Tony's okay. band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got his own band now, Los mm-hmm. Trendy, with his wife. So they got kind of little parallel universes going. That's and cool. uh, scheduling easier. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> they were cool. And then we played. It was a good gig. Jerry got a little weirded out because he flipped the beat over a couple times the first tune and told him not to worry that shit happened. But it was good. Pete was roaring. Pete did broke off that mm. froze-up shit he had at the uh. gig that we did with you at um, Gazari mm. um, Key, Club. Key Club. Used to be Gazari's. Yeah, those guys. Godfather of Rock. <laughs> and so Pete's got it back. He last week, too, he charged hard. And then um, the gears came on. I ain't seen them played for... 26, 7, uh, 28 years. Uh, cool. Long time. God, I wish I had some Gears music here. Damn, I forgot about that. But, um, 
Yeah, three out of the four original cats. Mike V was on the bass, and they sound great. Yeah, so it's happening gig. Cool. It's late one though. A lot of fog. The fog rolled all yeah, the way up to there. Foggy lately. Man. I mean, if it gets up to Highland Park, yeah, it's about twenty-five miles north of Pedro. Sort of getting onto Pasadena, so Tri- trippy weather. You're like a bed here. Yeah. Oh well, you're yeah. at you're at the uh, Love Grotto. I think it's in the roof. Yeah. yeah. And the Pleasure Point, and that's kind of uh, just dive right in. Recruitment. <laughs> <laughs> of uh, Love Grotto. So, yeah, it got, it's yeah, inter- got other levels to it. I mean, you can get up on that. Yeah, it's got international sofa surfer status now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Peaks had some of her... Uh, there's some, like, website for cats to uh, tour yeah. and not have pads. And just, like, couch tour, you know? They hook a Kanak up. And she's brought a couple of them over on... Uh, as guests, who was last time? Giovanni? Giovanni. Yeah, from Genoa. Yeah. And before that was... Uh, from uh, England. Yeah. What's his name? Mark. Mark, yeah. Yeah, Mark. He was uh, down in South America, I think, probably now. He was traveling right. all over the world. He was traveling on trains. <laughs> yeah, but he's from England. And he was having a time, but... That's a trip. Well, we should... Uh, hey, Tal, how are you? You ain't afraid to talk now, right? Yeah. <laughs> Welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Uh, Brother Matt. Nice to Sean. meet you. Hi. Hey, Hi. how are you? Nice to meet you. It's my friend Ben. Hello. Hey, Ben. Tal's bass player. So uh, we should play some of your music here and let people hear. Okay? Okay. Thank <laughs> you. 
from Pedro show that was uh, Charles Mingus with Hog Column Blues you know that too Tal you might yeah I mean it's not heavy on bass but it's an incredible composition his twisted thing on uh, Mr. Ellington style yeah he's incredible incredible composer well, I want to talk to you about composing next hour but we got to finish up so before that we had Bertram uh, Tureski with the uh, Mingus, you know, he's a great cat. I got to meet him. Uh, in fact, I got to play some with him and some other people. Uh, I don't know. Maybe seven years ago? It was with uh, four or five other stand-up players. And that is it. Oh. No drums or anything. It was a real pan-shitter of a gig. But he was a really interesting man. And he plays... Stand-up bass, he does this thing they call the extended stuff technique, you know, where he's playing non-traditional places, like other side of the bridges and uh, tapping on the back. And Nels tells me he's had pieces written by composers just for him to play. Pretty uh, great bass player. Very, very uh, singular and unique in his style. A lot of personality. And we had Devin Hoff before that with the alarm from his solo album, Solo Bass. We've had Devin on the show, mm-hmm. the great cat. And we start off with um, Tal Wickenfeld with 
be seated. And the title can be whatever we want it to be. Right, okay. <laughs> but we're there at the end of the first hour of November 23rd, 2008, Watt from Pedro Show. Hold tight for hour two. November 23rd, 2008, second hour of the Watt from Pedro Show. And our guest here, Talwickenfeld, how are you? Good. I know uh, you got to speak a little bit. Now, you're a bass player. I am. <laughs> yeah, you're quite a bass player. And uh, interested on, I mean, you told me a little bit before, but for the listeners, uh, how'd you get into it? How did I get into it? Yeah, you were a guitar player first or something? Yeah. It just kind of happened. It didn't really... Yeah, it just kind of happened. Okay, let me talk about music. How'd you get into music? How'd you get into the guitar? Same thing. Just got into it. Yeah. I mean, my dad was playing me some interesting music, like Hendrix and Herbie Hancock. and. Was he a musician? No, he just liked just music. Just liked records. Yeah. So you were a kid, maybe. Yeah. And uh, you're hearing these Hendrix records and stuff, and like, wow, I want to play guitar. I don't even think it happened. I think he may have played that stuff after I started guitar. Like, as a result, like... Who made oh, you pick up that guitar? Somebody at school said, hey, why don't you try that? Honestly, I, I don't even remember. I think I just, like, kind of just woke up one day saying, I want to play guitar, like, out of nowhere, just randomly. Yeah, you didn't have one, right? You had to go chase one down. Yeah, it was just very random. Nobody's playing. No? Yeah. It's like, I think I'll get a guitar and I'll just start... Yeah, right. Playing the fuck out of it. <laughs> so what was the first song that you learned? Ooh. Or did you start writing songs right away? I did. I wrote a song like the first day. Wow. I picked it up, yeah. <laughs> wow. Do you remember how old you were? Yeah, I was uh, 14 and a half. Wow. Yeah, not that long ago. <laughs> so you get the guitar... You write a song, but you probably start playing on with records, right? No, not really. And you're playing I mean, by yourself. Do you have an idea? You want to make a band? You want to play with uh, buddies? I had, yeah, I had some friends at school. Well, they weren't friends until I started playing, and then I kind of made a new circle of friends that played music. Cause, right away. Well, yeah, because I wanted to play with other people, and we started kind of taking all our lunch breaks and um, oh, playing at school. Yeah, just playing, yeah, every minute we could, basically. I wouldn't eat. <laughs> and this is in Sydney? Yeah. Australia. You folks out there. Um, instead of chowing, you were playing. Right. Now, were some of these people playing a little before you so you could, like, pick up on what they were doing, or is it all just self-taught? Hmm. They were, I mean, I was in, um, I actually joined the jazz band. Oh, good, like a class. Like, which was, basically they had, like, all these different, um, they had, like, mainly it was just for classical music. And um, there were, like, levels that you'd go to every year, and then basically, like, you'd do all seven years. You had to be playing for seven years or something. And then after that, you kind of, can audition for the jazz band or something 
Um, but basically what happened with me is I was playing and I think it was like maybe after like a month or two I joined. So I just kind of, wow. yeah. And I got, so I got into that kind of music pretty quick and they, because I, um, I was a guitarist, they, they made an exception and said, oh, you can join now, you know. So I, I was in the jazz band. Then the other people I played with, where well, we were just playing some like good old rock and roll. Yeah, stuff. right. That I think the drummer wasn't even a drummer. He was um, he was like one of my closest friends. He played the oboe, and he just <laughs> could play the drums. And like we were just you know mucking around, having a good time. But um, play the drums, you could probably play anything. But so I didn't. Um, it was pretty everything pr- pretty much happened very quickly like once I started you know at 14 and a half like two years later I'm already like going off to America trying to you know create a career in music so I kind of didn't do much while I was at home like in Sydney yeah yeah well in the school they probably taught you to sight read um yeah a little bit a little bit um, I mean, them chords and stuff, you, you just figure them out? Or... <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm mainly an ear player. I mean, yeah. I did learn to read along the way in several several different places. I taught myself a lot, too. Yeah, like I yeah. just got, like, a book. and um, I've always known how to read rhythms since I was a little kid because we were just taught that. In school? So, yeah. It's like kind of just in a... Like every kid kind of knew how to read rhythms, yeah. whether they played music or not. Like alphabet or yeah, right. math. So they'd like hold up these signs that would have like a one-bar rhythm and we'd all have to like sing it to the teacher and then they'd be switching around the bars and like the signs. It's interesting. You know, I'm glad because cause that sure. really helped me. Prepped you up. Yeah. Wow. Um Did you start recording these songs that you wrote right away? Little recorders? No, not really. I mean, I wrote them down, but... um, Oh, so you still know them? I think think a few of them I do, yeah. (laughs) I got them in my back pocket. (laughs) (laughs) Because, no, I I just say this because I didn't write... I wrote one song my entire teen years. Really? It's called Mr. Bass, King of Outer Space. It's about... Uh, bass player playing this bass solo where the whole band gets blown away by it or some shit. It was a stupid fucking song. <laughs> Embarrassing. <laughs> but the culture was just so much different. People didn't write songs. You right. copied records. Not till punk, I met people who were writing their own songs. I, obviously, people were doing it, but it was nothing around local. Right. There was school band. Uh... But yeah, there'd be classical music, and then they'd have a jazz kind of thing. Right. Do theme from Hawaii Five O or uh, <laughs> Edgar Winter Group, Frankenstein. <laughs> they'd also double as the the marching band for the football game and shit. And uh, I tried seventh grade. What are we? Thirteen. And again, they put me on clarinet. And after ten weeks, his name is Mr. Luna, and he said. You try hard, Watt, but man, you ain't got it. <laughs> so I never tried to school music again. 
<laughs> it was hard. The clarinet was hard. I wanted to do sax, but so did like 20 other dudes, so they gave me the clarinet. I think I was interested in the saxophone for a while. Yeah. But, they didn't uh, really, I don't even think there was guitar positions. There was a stand-up bass guy, Mark, Mark Terlizzi. Remember yeah, him? Yeah, yeah. He was a cat. And uh, so I got into music playing with my friend. I don't want to hang out with him. Actually, his mother put me on bass. I didn't really know what a bass was because of arena rock and so far away, it was hard to know. They looked like guitars. Right. And in the picture, it looked like, well, you could see there was only four tuners, so knew they had four strings. But I didn't really know they were bigger. I didn't know bass meant low. I didn't know what the fuck it meant. I didn't know shit. <laughs> Although I was, you know, I was listening to a lot of rock and roll records. It just music wasn't as accessible. How it was done is more mysterious. No instructional videos. <laughs> Carol K books were out, stuff like that. Alfred's Guitar Method, stuff like that. But no, no like instructional video. No uh, shit hard center with the. No YouTube. It was lo a lot more mysterious. You would buy your guitars at uh, where they sold records. There's maybe some music stores up in Hollywood, but around hearing stuff like Chuck Sound of Music uh, they sold records and they'd have maybe only a couple Fenders a lot of the K and Tesco and these things really Kano and then the pawn shops would have these cheap things and then I didn't get a bass till I was 16 so I was playing a guitar for the first few years with just four strings I thought they had thinner necks and then found out that they I, I, I saw one at Chuck Sound of Music and I just started 10th grade. And I'm, you know, new batch of people from high school, from junior high. So I was telling some guy, yeah, I'm a bass player and all this shit. This guy's in the store. I can't remember his name anymore. Terrible. But anyway, this guy, you know, I'm looking at this fucking thing. And I'm tripping on the strings. How big they are. This guy goes, hey, I thought you were a bass player. You know, he sees me. He's looking at records. And I said, I am. And he says, well, why are you tripping on that? I said, well, look at this thing, man. <laughs> he goes, well, that's a bass. And I go, oh, I know that. <laughs> I did not know that. It blew my mind. I said, I was thinking, fuck. No wonder it's only got four strings. <laughs> I mean, the, the wire, the, so big. I was... Uh, doing a couple jobs bag of manure and tiring uh, newspapers at like times they had this big uh, crank machine and put the string around so I worked really hard to buy one of these things not a fender it was a K a hundred bucks all summer and man it had action this thing was like a bow and arrow you would <laughs> stick your whole arm between your neck and the fretboard and the strings and it was hard man I couldn't really hear it on the records of course, at the gigs, the arena rock gigs, you know, you couldn't tell. It was kind of this force, you know, but no notes or anything. Those days, the PA was mainly for the singing. And the bands, that's why you see pictures of 70s concerts, there's all these amps, because they're literally powering these arenas from the stage. Bass players have like six, eight SVTs. And so mainly the singing's coming out. But even with that, you, you just couldn't tell what it was. So it was very mysterious to me. Some of the R&B guys, like uh, 
James Jamerson, I could hear, because the, the band would make room for them, so I could hear what the bass was doing. So it was pretty intense on me, but it was really mysterious bass. I didn't know what it was. No, In those days, no one wanted to play it, except maybe the guy in the school band. Like, just garage jamming, and no one wanted to do it, man. No one. No one. And then, eventually, cats would go to it that were guitar players, but to get gigs, because no one else would do it. <laughs> now, I got put on it because D. Boone's mom wanted us to have a band and be in the house. And you can, you know, every band's got one, so you're going to be bass. So, But, man, I think it was the luckiest thing in the world. And you obviously knew what they were. <laughs> yeah. And what made you change your mind? I want to play this and not that. Well, I'd picked up bass a few times, you know, and played it, and I always... Something about the big strings yeah. and about the, you know, depth of the sound and the fact that I'm in the rhythm section, all those things, just... It just resonated with me, that's all I can say. It just felt right. I, I always felt way more connected to the bass than the guitar, you know? You mean they didn't have the guitar in the rhythm section? Because <laughs> in the old days, you know, that's where the guitar was, with their confidant chords and I stuff. mean, yeah, but like, I mean, you're not really controlling the groove as much, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You're not really the center of the groove. I mean, the bass, even though you can have a rhythm section guitarist, the bass player is really the guy that's, or the girl, <laughs> that's, mm -hmm. you know, leading, leading the groove. Yeah. That's what I mean, you know. Yeah, because, you know, old days... Like swing bands and stuff like that. Yeah. Guitar players, they hardly ever did solos. Right. That all changes with uh, yeah. Charlie Christian and people like this. Right. Of course, Jimi Hendrix and all that. And rock and roll, where they stripped down bands to essentially rhythm sections. And so the soloists become tenor voices. Right. You know. But in those bands, you had so much horns going on, they were the tenor voices. And so piano even was in the rhythm section. And the bass, you know, uh, they didn't have the good amplification. In fact, they weren't electric basses; they're stand-ups. Right. So I think you needed like to gang together. That's why they had gangs of horns. It wasn't really PA's. Right. You'd have to power these dance halls. Talk to older cats. They're stomping at the dancing. You'd have to have all these. And then economically, it was just intense to have a 15-piece band on the road. I think in 1939 there was 30,000. Swing bands torn. Wow. Yeah, can you barely imagine how? So the competition was fierce. Just a whole nother world. So you get a bass. What was your first bass? Um, well, my first two bases were really close together. I mean, at first I, you know, saved up for one. And um, I bought, like, this combo of a bass and a, a little mini amplifier, like, together. Um, for like, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. You know, and then... Um, Who made it? I don't remember. It was like a really cheap, just like a... Yeah. I don't even know if it had a name. And then I got a, a music man, like right after that, because I was, you know, everything was moving really quickly again. Yeah, yeah. So then, And then, um, when I... Um, that was right before I like made the official switch to bass. That was when I was a guitar player and I was like, hmm, 
bass. It looks interesting, you know. I'm gonna like buy one, and I bought the Music Man. And then, like when I'm like, okay, I'm switching to bass. Then I got I I um what happened was I was in America at this point, you know. Um, I'd already moved here by myself, and um, I. I went to this thing called the NAB show. You know the NAB show? Yeah, yeah it's an industry. Yeah. Where people and, manufacture um, musical gear. When I was playing and and uh, started talking to Sadowski, Roger Sadowski, who uh, then offered me an endorsement for his basses, which was like into about maybe I'd been playing bass for like two or three weeks. You know? <laughs> and uh, and then I so. <laughs> Holy! And I got they got a got a Sadowski bass, and that's the same one I use today. I've used it the whole time. When we saw it the gig, yeah, yeah, it's kind of like a jazz Fender jazz. Yeah, it's basically a copy of a Fender jazz with his own preamp. No, no, the guys at lunchtime. (laughs) You obviously didn't bring them to U.S. (laughs) <laughs> I would have loved fans, to bring I mean, them I know, I'm not, not, not cutting on them But I mean, the point being Do you make bands outside of the school bands? Um, no I was uh, very focused at the time Before I even switched to bass On songwriting That was my main thing Was just writing songs So all I did was write songs So you want to do gigs? I didn't feel um, I was ready to perform and I was still working on my craft, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't play a gig till I I didn't play any gigs on guitar. Um purposely, yeah. Wasn't there school things? Like assembly or Oh yeah, I mean yeah, I did yeah. a few things for school, but like I, I refused to do gigs. The still. Club. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Um and then when I switched to bass I was like, okay, I'm going to do a gig. So I did, like, a wedding gig, and I would do just, like, really small kind of gigs to just see, you know, you know, just feel it out, you know? It's like the playing in front of people. Yeah, and... Uh, so you must have got cats together to do that, or were they well, solo? No, no, they, it would be like I was a freelance bass player that was hired to, to play bass for whoever, and I would read whatever play they already have it together and like you join their unit yeah basically yeah. yeah just like be a side man yeah yeah because a lot of people have this little stage where you have a band and you just try playing around I've never done that yeah well everybody's different I mean yeah some people that's like about 99% of their <laughs> when I journey. moved to when I started you know when I moved to New York I um I was writing, this is when I was a bass player, I, I was starting to write music and stuff to do this album yeah. that you have. And um, I was playing out with, you know, my band. Although it wasn't my band, it was me and whoever I decided to use on drums and guitar and keyboards, and it would vary every gig. So I would just hire people as my sidemen. But that's your first, like, band. Yeah, basically. And so that was me, you know, kind of getting the compositions together and working yeah. towards this album that I did. Yeah. It's called Transformation. Yeah. What, like from guitar to bass? Oh, a lot of things, okay. I guess. <laughs> Do you ever record on the guitar? 
just a few songs that I wrote, but... Well, like little demos. Yeah. But you never... Yeah, okay. And uh, being the side person, if you were doing gigs like that, did you also get in on uh, some recording with the bass? They bring you in for a session? Here's a song, play. Um... I did a few things, yeah, for some other people. Yeah, because once I started playing out, then other people yeah. started hearing me, and then the word started spreading. So this is your first time in the studio? Uh, my CD? No, doing these sessions. Yeah, and I didn't do a lot. I mean, my uh, album was pretty early on, too, you know? Yeah. In my career. So, I mean... Yeah, I was gathering those songs as a teenager. I think I just turned 20 or something when I did it, you know. And so I, I started... Once once I'd done the CD, a lot of people heard, you know, what I do. And then, then stuff started happening kind of like after the CD. Yeah. When I first... Miniman recorded, we were 22, I think. That's and awesome. we recorded it, 22 years old. And uh, we recorded and mixed it all in one night. It was scary. <laughs> you recorded and mixed it in one night. Yeah, seven songs. They're very little songs. And uh cost 300 bucks. I remember. It came out a couple months later on SST Records. And uh, it was pretty amazing for us we didn't know you could do shit like that you know it was a whole punk movement never could imagine that as a teenager so it was kind of a trick uh, there was a recording we did at Harbor but it was we never got released we did three or four songs somebody had a class in recording and had us come in so that was my first time in the studio and the second time was when the record came out and uh, those days you recorded uh It'd be cheaper if you went in from midnight to eight. So like Minutemen, I think we only did one record in the daytime. They're all really late at night. And used tape. Yeah, like a gig in front of the mic. It's a trip for us. But we started doing it pretty often. Once we did our first one, we'd do them every eight, nine months because it was way up to letting people know you got something going, something new. The college radio was starting to open up and play some punk stuff. Mm -hmm. We'd get these recordings up. When I look back now, I'm just glad we did it. I mean, we never really thought about it a lot. We never thought of like these songs are going to be hits or stuff like this. It was just a way to get people at the gigs. So, so different. But now I look back at the, at the stuff and they're like diary it's where we were as a band, our lives. It's funny how um, the CDs were to get people at the gigs, and now the gigs are a way to sell CDs. It's like reverse yeah. now. You're working on this transformation record. How long did it take? We did it uh, two days in the studio. Two days. Pretty quick. Yeah. Not as quick as you guys. <laughs> yeah, but like all, the, all those seven songs, well, we actually did ten songs, and we used seven. They're not as long as one of your tunes. <laughs> so, different thing. Did you practice a lot with these guys? You just we did about four rehearsals. Yeah, wow. That's well. Actually, with Georgie, with the drummer, it was only three weeks. We had a cat. 
we started the Minuteman with a drummer named Frank Taji, really nice man, a welder. And we did, after the second gig, he got scared of punk and ran off. I mean, right after the gig, left his drums there and everything. Kind of freaked out. I saw him years later, and he told me, man, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but, you know, in the early days of the scene, a lot of people, <laughs> you know, it was trippy for them. <clears throat> they didn't see it as a way of doing any kind of music you wanted and stuff. It was like some weird, maybe sexual identity years. <laughs> I don't know what people thought of it. They really freaked them out. Well, me and Dee Boone, really early on, we saw this scene that was... I mean, things are a lot more loose now, but if you can understand those days, that was pretty wild. And that's the way we saw it as. We thought it was an opportunity. But a lot of people saw the context it was put in socially, and these bunch of fucking weirdos. And, but we were weirdos anyway, so we didn't care. But Frank ran off, so we got Georgie. Because we had a band before that, about a year before it, called Reactionaries, and he was a drummer. And so Georgie comes back. He's joined some new wave band for a year, and then he had quit. He's, Come on! So he learned the thing in three weeks. But you know, we were good enough to learn that shit quick. <laughs> Plus, we were writing it, uh, you know. And for us, we actually wrote songs in that first band, Reactionaries. Those are the first songs I ever wrote. Maybe twenty. I'm twenty years old. They're like terrible, terrible, the worst. We got one little practice tape we take uh, recorded, but like nine or ten of them. There's some cats in Pedro who want to cover those. Reactionary songs? Yeah, they had me write the words from I can't believe it, man. It's so bad. But, you know, you got to start somewhere. And then Minutemen, I don't think we're even in tune. We were so nervous we forgot to check. Because Minutemen wouldn't use tuners. We had figured out, you know, I mean, as teenagers, we didn't even know about tuning. We didn't understand about tension of the strings and the note <laughs> yeah, you know. played down on the corner and it sounded right we thought you're in tune you know you didn't know you're down on the corner it had to be like the other guys down on the corner you know this Creedence song it's a very simple riff on the guitar so we thought tuning uh, the tension on the string was like personal some people liked them loose some liked them tight <laughs> 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 terrible Luckily, I have no recordings of those days. <laughs> I can imagine what it sounded like. And, uh, well, you probably start doing gigs with this band then. I, I've never, like, done, you know, used the same band twice. It's just different people every time. Yeah. You know? But you're probably consistent. Yeah, probably. Sometimes I don't show up to my own gig. <laughs> Uh, no so you start playing around then because you told me you were just recently on a tour yeah uh, that was uh, well it was from two of the members from the band Keith Carlock the drummer and Wayne Krantz was the guitarist yeah and we're doing uh, mainly Wayne stuff but we did about two or three of my songs so yeah because that was the, the same band but because it was a trio and my uh, CD is mainly like quintet, it, it wasn't really going to work to do m more than a few of the songs. Yeah. So, yeah, it kind of just depends on the scenario, you know. But now, that's why I got the keyboard player to do that 
bass day that we did together. Yeah. yeah. So that we could do a few more of my songs. Right. Yeah. Now, uh, you got asked to play with other people at gigs, right? Yeah. Because of playing around? Yeah, mainly. A lot of people heard my CD, too. That was kind of like my first... It was almost like my demo. Yeah, yeah. Here's here I am. Yeah. And, uh... Because, you know, people are asking me all the time, you know, how do people... How do you get people to notice you? How do you get people to uh, hear you? Right. And I'm kind of like, from the old days, you just do bungee kicks and you just keep playing. <laughs> you just try to, like, beat it into them or something. Or make it make an opportunity there if they want to come check you out. And people are always ask young people, always asking me the, for the silver bullet. You know, how do you get people to know? How do you get to hear it? And so what do you think happened? You're just lucky or... Uh... Um... I guess it's kind of like a, a chain reaction, I think, like a butterfly effect, or however you want to call it. You know, if one person hears you and likes what you do, then they spread the word to five other people, and then they spread the word, and then they come hear you. And it's The basically... NAMM thing was a big yeah, deal, Yeah, the NAMM though. show, yeah. Now, how'd you get that? That was just kind of like a lot of people went to it. You just kind of... Oh, you just showed up there and started playing. No, nobody yeah. asked you to play in one of their booths or anything. No. Oh, my God. So you just went up there and just started playing in front of people. Oh, okay. So you hear that, kids? You want people to know us, go to the NAMM show and start jamming. <laughs> Sadowski uh, <laughs> picks up on your trip. Because <laughs> I don't really know what to tell them because I, I know this old way. I don't think there was NAMM shows in those days. But even if there was, I think we'd be too scared. <laughs> 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 but there's a lot of different ways to do this kind of thing, you know. So that's interesting. You just showed up. That's fucking some huevos. Yeah. I've been to a couple of them, like people ask me to go that make amps and stuff and hey, why don't you check out a thing? And then uh, of course there's all these other people at booths and they're se- it's selling equipment. Mm-hmm. Musical equipment. Basses. Guitars, drums, recording stuff, light stuff, the whole... It's quite an industry nowadays. And it's here, it's usually in Orange County, in Anaheim. Mm-hmm. It's usually around the first of the year. So that that was a big invite to like, hey, this is what Tao's doing. Yeah. And then the CD, too. And then the CD comes out. Yeah. But see, a lot of cats make CDs. Mm-hmm. Especially nowadays, you can make them in your bedroom, which is great. <laughs> but uh, the right people were hearing yours. Like, you're playing with Jeff Beck. How did he uh, hear He you? heard my CD, too, and uh, also heard uh, recording and me playing with the Allman Brothers. Oh, wow. So you played with them beforehand. Yeah. Now, how did they hear you? How did they hear me? Um, a couple of the members heard me playing in my band. Yeah, so a gig. Yeah, and then they asked me to play with them, like, in New York. When they came to town on tour. Yeah, something. right. Yeah. yeah, they usually play, like, uh, about, I don't even know, ten nights at the Beacon. Beacon Theater in New York. Now, when you... I, I should, I'm going backwards a little bit, but when you got into the bass, were you listening to other bass players? Yeah. Yeah, Who? Jocko Pastorius. Yeah. Anthony Jackson. 
Yeah. Anthony's... Uh, um, Anthony used to come to, like, every one of my gigs, too. He used to come to all of my gigs in the city and support me, and I'm sure people heard about me through him, too. So these guys had bearing on your style a little bit. Of course, you got your own thing. Anthony definitely influenced me a lot. And... Um, Marcus Miller. Marcus Miller, right? Mm-hmm. Who I got together with him when I was about seventeen too, and to like play or get a lesson. Oh really? Yeah. Um, and um, Anthony Jackson and yeah, ba- basically those three, I guess. You really? I mean, sure, one. there's more, but like that's where it started. Mm-hmm. Definitely started. Yeah. Uh. Wow. You listen to those records. Your pop wasn't listening to those records yet, was he? No. Yeah. I also also was listening to Jameson a lot. I dug Jameson. James Jameson, yeah. Motown bassist. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, who introduced me to? Yeah, I don't even remember now. <laughs> now, when you're writing this, that's okay. I can't remember shit. When you're when you're uh, writing your songs for transformation, you know, you're down the road songwriting. You've written a bunch of songs by this time, but uh, you're writing on the bass. Sometimes, sometimes the bass, sometimes the guitar. Yeah, I still play the guitar to compose. Um, I think a song or two. I even played the piano to mm. write it. And you put it on tape, or you start for them. I wrote it down. Yeah. Um, trying to think. So I even like playing drums too, and I'll start with some some kind of an idea on the drums, and then you know write something from there. Develop it. Yeah. Different things will inspire me compositionally, you know. And. Um when you were playing with these cats, it was more like jams. They had their tunes, and you come in and play along with us. Um, w- with the, which Almond one? Brothers, Jeff Beck. Uh, playing their stuff, yeah. 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 Um, I mean, those cats have long history. <laughs> For a lot of songs. Uh, Almond Brothers played. Uh, um, I played in memory of Elizabeth Reed. Yeah. I played that with them. We went on for about an hour with that song. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do, Weapon Post? Didn't, they no. do a pretty long version <laughs> of Weapon Post. Yeah. <laughs> Good band. Wow. So, since then, you've been touring with this quartet, yep. or trio, right? Doing like a lot of tours with Jeff Beck next year too. I think That's we're doing what's coming like, up. I think we're doing like three tours next year. But you got some interesting uh, studio work before. You were telling me you got to record with uh, Herbie Hancock. Yeah. Uh, well, that was uh, not. Uh, I mean, it, it was. Um, how do you say it? It's a thing called Live at Abbey Road, which is um, in England. You know where the Beatles recorded. Studio, Abbey Road Studio. Yeah, but it was like a filmed for a TV show called Live at Abbey Road. Yeah. So it was on TV. Um, that was Wayne Shorter, too. Right, Amazing. right. 
So half yeah. the quartet of Miles Davis. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh, is it scary? Well, it was. Um, it was yeah. It was scary, and it was a uh, like right off the plane too, <laughs> from America to England, and yeah. But it was amazing. It was. I almost fell off my seat. <laughs> you know, yeah, they're yeah. definitely my heroes. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Incredible musicians. And uh, but do you do a lot of side uh, man session stuff? Do you enjoy it? Yeah. More than gigs. Well, they are gigs. Stuff. Oh, you mean like gigs of my own? Yeah. I like to do a bit of everything. I like variation. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just, I like being inspired and I like good music. So all these things, I mean, it's kind of across the board musically. You know, Herbie Hancock and Jeff Beck are completely different things, you know. And um, they're both great music. And so I just love great music, no matter no matter what style it is. And then if I play my own thing, same thing, you know, so... Mang mang in a go for you land in London meeting. Yeah. I am Ika Mouse, six feet six above sea level. And it's time for the I edition of the news with Brother Matt. Yeah.
Thank you very much, Brother Matt, oh, for your spin you. cycle. Thank I did you. not announce it, so we just sprung <laughs> it on you after our, our spiel with the towel here. Uh, it's the end of the second hour, November 23rd, 2008. Edition Watt from Pedro Show. Hold tight for hour three. November 23rd, 2008. It's the third hour of the Watt from Pedro Show. My smile is stuck. There's no way in the world now I can possibly go back to your fine land. Not now. Not My smile is stuck. No way to go back to your fine land.
from Pedro show start third hour out with Frownland from unknown instructors this is an album I played bass on it's coming out in a little while and uh, Mr. Joe Baez is on guitar 
George Hurley on drums, and uh, Dan McGuire reading his poems. The album's called Funland, but for some reason they called this tune Frownland. <laughs> well, the poem's about that kind of. So, it's a trippy record. It's the third one for that project. And then we heard uh, something from Italy, a band called Rice on the Record, and a tune called Fake Smile. And then Tal Wickenfeld with Truth Be Told from her Transformer album. And uh, Tal, you got plans to record again? Your own stuff? I don't have plans to record. Probably will happen soon, though. (laughs) After this torrent. You get to see a lot of bands when you're out. Do you watch the other bands? Or do you just wait in the dressing room? Like the openers. Because mm. I wondered uh, if you've seen any bands you like. There hasn't People. been a lot of openers. Oh, really? Not really. You ain't part of Bills with a bunch of bands. Have you done any festivals? Yeah, a lot of festivals. Yeah, well, there's usually more than one band at festivals. Yeah, we just show up right before we start. Uh, so. so you don't get a chance to see the bands. As I found, with the Stooges, I do a lot of festivals. And uh, I try to see bands, see what's going on. I mean, I like hearing the music, too, just the songs. But seeing bands live is wild. And I don't go to as much clubs. So usually the uh, people I see play live is when I'm playing the gigs. And I try to see what's going on yeah so you don't really know do you go to gigs when you're not playing occasionally sometimes uh, I like a band more live than listen to the records something about performance then other times I like the recordings much more than the performance it's trippy about that they're almost two different worlds I found uh, when you see a band play do you look at the bass player I mean you've seen some bands play not any more than you know yeah cause I do <laughs> I always send her right in right away not on purpose I just what I'm thinking in my head is like well, probably nine chances out of ten they did not write the song. And the probably it was the guitarist or something. And then they had to come up with a part. Or maybe they got told what to play you were. So I'm thinking, what would I be doing in this? So I'm thinking while I'm watching them, what would I play to this? And it's it's weird. It's not on purpose. It's just some automatic right. uh, unconscious thing kicks in. Yeah. And, I mean, it's weird. But... The other thing in my mind that happens that I don't like is like I try to compare the band to something I've already heard. I hate that. You know? I can't let the band live on its own. It's like my mind has to shackle it. Related to this. Yeah, they sound like that. They sound like this, that. And I can't put an end to that. I've been fighting it for years. What I've learned to do is like I still do those things, those pronouncements and judgments. But then as soon as my mind gets done with that, I say, who cares? 
I either like it or I don't. And then so I change my mind sometimes. So I think that's a little looser. The other thing was like so Dachau, mm-hmm. you know, where I don't let the band live. I have to like like it is an insect and I put a pin through it and had to pin it down. Oh, it belongs here. It belongs there. So weird. I think some of it might not be all my fault. I think this, this idea of marketing genres is really strong on us as listeners mm-hmm. and gig goers. You have to really fight to keep music free in your mind. Man, I hate that. Extension of the program. Yeah, or something. Yeah, categorization. Or just confining it, mm-hmm. associating it to things you've ever already heard, and then you're almost, they're almost like a little creature of your own thing. Actually, it's not. They're doing their performance, and you're just witnessing it. And I don't think you get the full effect of the performance if you keep it all narrow like that. So I've been working hard against that. It's a trippy kind of experience you've had with music. I mean, for me, in my experiences with people who play music, kind of got into it very quick. Mm. Do you think everybody has something to offer, even if they're maybe not so accepted by... Uh, I don't know. Definitely. Yeah. I know what you're saying, definitely. Commercially viable, I think this word. Everyone in the world has something to say. It's just a matter of... And music is a great way of sharing. Yeah, there's one way of showing it. There's many ways that people do it, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, hopefully, you know, well, I, I think we are, um, whoever is out there, are voices for many people, you know. We're talking on behalf of a lot of people, right? You know, we, when we're communicating an idea or, you know a thought or a belief or a hope. We're not doing it just because we believe that. I mean, a lot of people have the same feelings and maybe we are saying it for them, you know? So. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I've heard songs and I thought, man, that's exactly how I feel. Right. In that moment. That speaks for the way I'm in here. Why couldn't I write that? (laughs) But then it it, it doesn't matter. Like... It doesn't matter who wrote it, as long as it's be, it's being said. No, yeah. I just uh, I didn't mean it that way. I mean, I just wish I had the capacity. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put those, sometimes so simple, too. Yeah. Like a very simple melody, very simple chord, very simple motion, a holler. Yeah. Big fat note. Yeah, one thing I noticed when I was watching you play was the way you moved around the bottom end. I think I told you that. That that was very, really interesting. Because uh, it seems like th- as bass goes on, it seems people are trying to work the high end of the bass. Right. And they're losing. They're almost like I was when I didn't know what that word bass meant. <laughs> I didn't know it meant the bottom. And so I've gone a little further beyond that. I learned about it. But it's actually uh, interesting to see people. Experiment with that. I hear with Brother Matt when he's doing his uh, these beats because these guys work in these machines. Mm-hmm. They 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 work bass yeah, really is fatness, and uh, you know they're not human. They're machines doing it, so they can 
make situations that are kind of pretty impossible. Yeah. But they're really interesting to hear and actually even more feel. Mm. Uh, the interaction with the kick drum and these synth basses and stuff is really wild. I, I find when I'm listening to his uh, music, music he plays. I don't really see a lot of people do it. Well, a lot of it's impossible to do, playing-wise. But when people are using it on instruments, like a bass guitar, something I do, uh, I'm very intrigued with this. And so it opens to me uh, possibility and comprehend all these things. Sometimes you can be in this a long time and you figure, ah, there's just a bunch of shticks. Certain, this is one thing uh, I kind of learn too when I'm seeing a bass player play, you know. Because it is, you can fit a lot of different motifs that have been in the the book, the fake book, and stick it with that. And so sometimes it's very inter- interesting. You quote back, you know, something that was used in a Motown song against uh, another kind of motif, and it's interesting that way. But bass on its own, for the sake of the tone, for the sake of the rhythm, and free of all the, the licks, the riffs. That's a wild thing. Because uh, the, 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 it's hard to unlearn. You learn these things from doing and playing the gigs and working your little songs. and Sometimes I just want to get free and push beyond out there. Even go. Somebody starting on bass can teach me to help unlearn this stuff. Because you end up, uh, uh, you know, I'm speaking of my own case personally, almost like building track homes. You know, garage on this side, porch on that side. It's the same shit. I'm just rearranging, you know, the, 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 the co- pieces of corn in different places of the turd, you know. <laughs> I just want to, you know? Yeah, variations on a Brett. Yeah, and, and I don't think it just means, you know, new effects, new, uh, more strings. I, I think there's a lot of possibility still at the bass. So when I'm watching somebody who opens up the doors on me with bass or experience in that, is they're really doing me a favor. And I'm grateful for them. I don't want to copy them because that's not having much respect. <laughs> but it's just uh, they're making uh, put my mind in a place where I can think different about it and get out of this used to you know, almost weird kind of comfort zone. Because in the long run, it's not comfortable. It's like I feel insecure about this. I ain't doing any growth. So what I've been doing a lot. It's kind of like session work, a little bit. But I've had people just sending me their songs and playing on them, trying to figure out these parts of their music. Some of the musics are like stuff I'm not used to at all, uh, which is neat. Very uh, challenging and bizarre. And, of course, uh, a lot of them, it's uh, underground bands and stuff, they don't... Come on! It's different than a a session where a producer wants a certain thing. It's like, no, man, just play. Of course, you don't want to just lay your own thing because you want to grow and be uh, 
challenged by their, their musics and fit in with that and not just roll them over with the same old Mike Watt. So this is what I've been trying to do. And it's something that the internet has made possible. In the old days, you had to bring these people to your practice pad, your garage. Now, you know, I don't even meet them or anything. You've never seen the band play or anything. So that's, that, that's a trippy place for me. Now you, by doing this damn thing, and now playing Palmer Brothers and uh, Mr. Beck and uh, Abbey Road thing, more opportunities. People, hey, bring the towel thing over here. But what do you think in your mind about that? You know, what is to be done? You mean working with other artists? Yeah. It definitely opens my mind, which is why I like working with a lot of different people because they all add to your musical vocabulary. Um, they add to your approach. They add to the way you would react to them due to how they like being reacted to, you know? And, um, yeah, and just what anything you play and how you back them as a soloist and... It all adds to your vocabulary. All these, all these little things that you can't really talk about musically, you know, um, subtleties that have, yeah, definitely, have taken on board. Nuance. Yeah, yeah, basically. So that's yeah, that's another reason why I like playing with a lot of different people. Not everybody know. operates the same, right? They don't run a band the same. Not one person. Yeah. Right. So, uh, do you like it when they're just? I'm just going to play and you play along. Or do you like them to write all the chords out for you? I've never had a a scenario like that, the first one that you've said. I mean, usually I'm stepping in to do a gig and they have compositions they want to play. Yeah. So. You've not been in improvised things. There's things where guys just, I'm going to play along and you... Well, I've done a... See you at the finish. That, that Wayne Kranz gig is like 95% improvised. The, the thing they did at base yeah. day, that, that guy. Um, but he, the way he works is he'll have like a few heads, like um, a few sections, melodies. And um, there'll be cues, so like A section and B section. And then he'll say, he'll count off the tune and we will just be playing anything, improvising for however long until he cues a section which is composed which we'll know and then he'll after that will come another improvised section so I've done a lot of improvising but there is some kind of structure within the improvising yeah right framework yeah Yeah. so it's kind of a roadmap. yeah well (laughs) to some degree he's pretty open you know, tempo changes and all that stuff, but there is yeah. a formula to that, you know. Yeah. Um, what, what kind of amps were you using? EBS. It's kind of a weird, wonky question, but <laughs> EBS, yeah, because I've never seen that. EBS, they're good. They're punchy and yeah. good modern amp. Yeah. Now, you, you were living in New York. Mm-hmm. I've always wondered about 
I have music friends there, but how do they get their shit around? They don't put them in cabs, do they? Yeah, you do. You do? Yeah. Kind of little ones, then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, people have told me also clubs have stuff that everybody uses. That's true, too. Yeah. So you just Sometimes it. I've even taken my stuff on the subway. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I've always got just those little tiny practical things, like, dreaded that. So lucky I live. I got my boat. <laughs> it's the worst when it's snowing and you're carrying it out. Oh. Ben knows about that. <laughs> He's from New York. He's a musician. Yeah, so this dilemma, right, of getting the shit around. In practice, He's that, a drummer. I, I wonder how he oh, does man. it. Oh, I bet. It's way worse for us. So you're, you're probably playing kits that are there. And... Most sometimes, yeah. If it's if it's just a re- you know an average gig, but if it's something like, you know, hyped up and like a special like CD release party, you know, and, like it's, it's really laid out and... You, you want to bring your here, shit. There, you have, you have to like do your own thing. Might just be ready for whatever. Happens. Sometimes stuff breaks. You know, it's not yours. So yeah. you're dragging a break. drum kit in the snow. I, I've had like floor times just collapse during the show. I was just like, okay. oh. or kick drums. You know, that just break like the stands. You got to put a brick in front of it or something. <laughs> There's still clubs like that. Oh yeah, I know, I know. Especially in New York. Have you ever had to play bases that ain't yours? No. Yeah, that's interesting. I've had to do that. <laughs> I mean, a couple times they handed me five string. I had to take the B string off. Like, I just couldn't do it. Retard. But, you know, at least I could play. Oh, man. Kind of vaudeville side of it. Show, show must go on. Some people, too. Very low action. Remember somebody was helping me and dropped my bass and broke it. So I had to use one of the opening bands bass and this guy, he must have like feather touch. Two slots. Yeah, they're almost laying on the frets. It was like, oh my God, I can't. It was very difficult. It was so difficult. And you know, everybody's got their own way of doing it. But, well. And then some cats, really high action, I was recording this horse stable in Dublin and this was a bow and arrow man it was killing my hand uh, but you know you, you make do you think equipment is that important? I think um, it lets you be you easier you know if you find the gear that works for you it's just it's, it takes away the fight the battle you know that that happens when you know you try to fight to say what you have to say, but you you know you fight in the instrument or you fight in the amplifier, you know. So if you have the right gear, I think it 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 just it's one less thing to think about, you know, and you can just concentrate on the music. And I'm still working on that, like most people are. You know, no one ever reaches that goal where they have everything's perfect gear wise. You, know? you tell me this bass even, right? Yeah, I mean, you you know, there's constant, you know, there's a constant search and then there's stuff that comes up along the way. And, and you know, then when you've found, you know, quote-unquote perfection, then you, 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 then you come across something else that you think, oh, what if this, you know, happens? What if I do this? And then, you know, so it's like, 
Yeah, it's con- continuous, I think. You know, but so I, I think gear plays a very important role to a musician. You know. Yeah, it gets kind of overemphasized, though. I think a little bit. It it does to to a degree. You know, I think my my whole philosophy is just like find the stuff you want and then stick with it. You know. As, I mean, that's kind of what I've done, although now I'm kind of trying to deal with a few things. But, you know, for the most part, I like to keep it simple. Yeah. Musically, are there things you're doing now that you want, oh, want to be doing later? That I don't want to be doing? Yeah. Musically. Um, no. No. You know what I'm saying? Uh, work oh, with the bass. Oh, playing-wise. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, c- I couldn't really single out, like, specific things that I'm playing and wouldn't want to play, but... I mean, I know I want to be better and better every year, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, I got certain kind of idioms that I just can't get free of. I always uh, dodge back into. Oh, like bad habits or something? No, just idioms. And so it just uh, it keeps me from uh, going beyond. Right. You go, you knee-jerk. It's unconscious. To be in the moment, you know? It's a, that's a grail. Mm-hmm. You're saying better. That's where I would say better. It's like get closer and closer in the moment. And uh, it's tough. I don't know if any gear will help me with that. <laughs> no. That's just one little part. I'll tell you one thing, though, this uh, folk tools being able to record with people I'm not even, I don't even know. I like this because it opens up these other challenges to me that I could not have without that gear. So in that way, the gear is very, and it ain't that much money the way these days are. When I was a young man, younger man, possible, possible, it's changed so differently. What do you, what do you, now you did the school thing with the because I get asked this a lot. In fact, I was just asked this. What do you think of schools for music? Hmm. Well, I think education is a good thing. It's just a matter of what you do with the knowledge that you're given. You know what I mean? I think that it's. It's it's food for thought. Everything that you're taught. Who? Oh, I'm a poet. <laughs> um, and as long as you take it and make your own with the information, I think it's a great thing to do. You know, to study. You know, to be more informed about music and um, all the different areas of music. But um, I don't like it when. A school will um, give you a bunch of information and make you think that this is the way it has to be. Because music uh, was music before there was any theory or any rules. So now, why is, is it that music has rules? And it doesn't have rules. And never will have rules. You know, and all the greatest music broke all the rules. So as long as 
the people that are studying are aware that there really are no rules and these are guidelines that you can learn from and feed off of but not stick to like glue, then they'll be great. So it's really just a mindset you have to be in while studying to, to make sure you're free. You know. Yeah. Don't let school get in the way of your education. Hmm. <laughs> or the math teacher. Like, a, writers probably face the same dilemma. And maybe they would say, one opinion might be, well, you can learn some grammar. That doesn't really write the novel. Right. So. And to write a novel, you really don't invent a lot of new words. You can. It's kind of hard to read. <laughs> well, like, I would say words... Because <laughs> against what they can... <laughs> Never tackle that one. Words are like notes, you know. Yeah, that's that, 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 that's it's how you construct the notes, or you construct the words, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, words are probably a little more um, not as open-ended as sound. Yeah, but I mean, conceptually. But you can have fun with that. Yeah. Because what people think of the words, you can turn them on themselves in yeah. irony and satire. Stuff like that. My point being, you can write a very original novel and not invent one new word. Right. And so maybe with the musics, stuff like that, too. Yeah. So we were talking, like the India, with the microtones, quarter tones. Arabs got that, too. I think the first intervals, (laughs) a quarter tone. So, and so they just had a different tradition and came about working with this nature, resonance, rhythms part of nature what do you think came first dancing or music probably dancing because you know it kind of is movement which you know obviously happens instantly I I guess you'd have to decide what you would consider dancing you know, like how they question what what is art nowadays, and you could say that, like, you know, this bowl of fruit is art. You know, but there's a link between dance and mm. music, right? No, I know, yeah. yeah. But it's like, so, I mean, someone could have just something done something pretty brief, and that could be considered a dance. <laughs> there's a trip down in the rainforest. There's these tribes where they have the kids, like, depending on what they're going to be in the society, anywhere from like nine months to nine years before they get to come out, and the kids start singing and dancing even though then they never heard music or seen dancing before so that's pretty bitch right so maybe it happened at the same time I think there's a bass sound in nature with the ocean mm. just sitting by the, the sea here yeah. in drop you can hear this mm. obviously earthquakes too but <laughs> not as common <laughs> probably not as attentive more in a panic when it's happening but sitting by the shore and listening to the sea, I hear a strange bass. It's trippy. There's a rhythm to it, but it's got all this uh, random and chaos to it. But it has big patterns in it, in a way. And wind, too. Very random in a way, but it starts settling into these kind of fuzzy patterns. And... Uh, like true improvisers dream maybe you know because you know you don't want to get caught in 
repetitiveness. But uh, you know, because nature has all this maximum randomness, but there's there is repetitiveness to it. You know, like fractals. You know about fractals, mathematical ways of almost kind of uh, describing life. Chaos theory, this stuff. People are trying this with electronic music because they can do it with the machines. It's hard for us because we get these licks. There's something great about licks, too. It's easy to dance to. I think my theory about dancing maybe it was first drums, the feet beating on the earth. I think there was a music there. Right. Thinking about it. I was thinking the other day about what music meant to me as a kid. It was a lot of mixed up different things. I think some ways I cared about what other people thought of it so I could fit in with them. Very bizarre. Nothing musical about it at all. It's like weird social... Really bizarre. That's kind of common, though, don't you think, when you're younger? Peers... Yeah, but I wouldn't want to blame other people. Is it? No, not my problem. <laughs> right, but I think that's probably universal. I mean, not not. I don't know. Oh, well, hopefully not. You know, I think there was music before there was speaking. Mm-hmm. Before oh, words. Yeah. And you know, if you don't know a foreign language like Chinese, where they use pitch, it sounds very sounds like those cats are singing mm-hmm. when they're talking. Wow. So, I know music's supposed to be a way of communicating, but sometimes I think it's only kind of a fabric. And really, the listener just makes up what they think they're understanding. Maybe nothing's really being communicated except feeling. Uh, a lot of art's this way. So the art piece and the artist and then the witness in this huge canyon between them but it's okay in a way it's kind of uh, free shouldn't be so tight because even sometimes I think a work uh, gets a life of its own and even the artist isn't part of it anymore because there was a moment in their life when they made it and they've moved on and that, but that piece is there now it's being interpreted it's all these other meanings I had very uh, strange uh, ideas about my songs being explained to me by uh, people writing a thing wow that's what you were thinking about huh and of course they couldn't know where did this lick come from or this or that or these words and these thoughts but I like kind of uh, the disconnect from it I think it makes an autonomy. And uh, sometimes it's such a private thing. So let's listen to more music.
was uh, Talic and Feel with Serendipity. And before that, we had Feely Under by Position Normal. Tal. That's a big word, serendipity. It's almost as, as long as Wilkenfeld. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you were thinking? <laughs> when you brought it? <laughs> Do you write all the time? I know you say you got no plans for recording. I was writing all the time for that one period up to the album. Yeah. I mean, but since then, no. At the moment, no, because I've just been focusing on other projects and stuff. Yeah. But I go through phases, yeah. Have I like had, writing. Uh-huh. I like writing. Have you had the the block thing yet? Yeah, a little bit. What do you do to get out of that? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Intense. <laughs> Every time you have to go to the well. <laughs> Please. You know, the muse. <laughs> Beg the muse. <laughs> Around the shoulder here. Just give me some tap. Reinvent yourself. Really weird. You ever get into this thing? This is one thing that punk helped us a lot with. Because before we thought all songs had to be verse, chorus, verse, bridge. This thing of, you know, kind of schematic. And then some of these bands we heard, man, these guys didn't have... Any part, one part. Or uh, I remember this urinal song. Uh, they stayed in this one key, and then the big change came, and they just went down a half step. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> then they went back, <laughs> and the song was over. <laughs> so eternal. <laughs> Slightest move, and the, they had to because that's all they could do. I remember talking, they were big inspirationists talking to these cats. They're still gigging too, after all these years. And uh, they put together the band by t- t- straws. You know, you're gonna be the bass player, you're gonna, yeah. No, no. Just totally random. And they recorded their first record, the guy played a little kid drum set with the uh, paper heads, and the bass and the guitar had plugged into the same amp, little amp. That's the first record. Kind of sounds that way too. It's kind of neat in a way, and this kind of stuff that's just it is profound on us. So sometimes I think, yeah, you just got to get rid of all the formula and let somehow let the tune have a life of its own. Sometimes I think oh, it's got to have beginning, a middle, end. Maybe. <laughs> it's got to have valleys. It's got to have mountains. Desert. Bayou. But maybe not. I just wrote a new batch of them for this thing coming up. But I love writing for Nels. Nels is such a student of improvisation. He's been doing it for like 30 years. So you just throw it at him and he comes right back at you. A head full of ideas. You just gotta set him up. He's a special musician. I really every time I play with that cat I learn from him. 
and so I'm going to take him to Japan in December. He's on tour. He's going to come in just for a couple days. But I've done this with him a bunch where I just set it up for him. And, just... and that's when I really love the guitar. It's no more adversary. It's no more something to fight or compete with. It's like, wow. Who'd we have on? Skip Heller, the other. He, I, this was a guitarist guy, and I asked him what he thought of bass, and he thought, well, the bass sketches the song. Remember, he said that? It sketches out the song. That's what he thought of it, which I thought was interesting. Because everybody else, it's like a trailer, it gets towed by the thing, right? You fill in with this kind of sound, you fill it up. And his, and I think about guitars like Dee Boone, and incredible influence on my style the way Dee Boone played all trebly like that and gave me all this place in the middle I would have never had a style like that except for playing with these guitars maybe more, more than other bass players listening to was having to play with him and him giving me all this and uh, what he did and same with drummers the way these cats come at you they actually help define you Yeah, so that's why I was asking you that stuff about those musicians and playing with different people and coming there and bringing you their thing, your thing to them. Right. But, you know, maybe they're counting on some of that too to push them into trippy places. Interesting thing. Um, have you ever played with another bass only? Just a different instrument? No. You on bass, someone else on bass. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, what'd you think of that? I dig it. No, uh, yeah. But, I mean, what'd you think about both bass? Did both stay in bass world, or did one go to... Uh, I guess you alternate. I guess you just kind of improvise and see where it goes. Take turns. Yeah. One stays uh, down, one goes up. Or you trade off different places in the down. <laughs> do you have uh, things you'd like to do that you're not doing now? Um, in terms of what? Music. I don't know. Would you like to put together a 20-piece band? Right for 20 people. I, I've, I wanted my first record to be a big band record. Yeah. But those, um, I might do that some at some point, definitely. Right for Bunch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm into that. Like yeah, the, I guess you could consider that a goal. Yeah, like the uh, conductor. Bass solo in a band is kind of like a conductor, huh? A little bit. Like a swingman on a basketball court. <laughs> You can run the flow a little bit. So people, it, it depends how generous the cats are you play, you're playing with. I want to thank you for coming. Well, thanks for, for having me. Being here and talking. Ben, thank you. Thank you. Born. Sean, brother Matt. Thank you. Aiden Abedin. Uh, good luck on the new musics with the touring. Thank you. And uh, it's uh, November 23rd, 2008, Watt from Pedro Show. Keep your powder dry.